Testament book of Psalms. We're going to be today in Psalm chapter 107. Psalm 107. I remember a Monday evening not too long ago where I came home from working, and when I arrived home, the house was a little quieter than it sometimes is. On this night, my wife Lisa was out. She was playing in a basketball game, and my daughter Jessica was away at college, and, and the only person left in our home was my daughter Julie. As I got home that night, she was running around the kitchen and she was doing something she ordinarily doesn't do. In fact, she was doing something she doesn't necessarily enjoy doing. She was cooking dinner. And um, she was happy as could be cooking dinner. And, and I discovered that she was cooking dinner, not just for her, but for me. She was cooking what she knew I would want to eat. And she was having a good time doing it. Now, again, Julie doesn't really like to cook and she doesn't really like to do dishes. But she did all of those things that night because she wasn't doing it just for herself. She was doing it for somebody else. She was doing it for her old dad. And if you're glad that my daughter, Julie, loves her old dad, me, say amen. All right? Good. Well, that was terrible. Ryan said, say amen earlier. I thought, well, I'll get him to do the same thing, you know? But she did that for me. Let me tell you, that's where the sweet spot in life is found. It's found in doing what you do, not just for yourself, but for someone you love. And for a person of faith, the sweet spot in life is found in doing what we do, not for our earthly father, per se, but for our heavenly father. Many people in this world, they want to have, they want to be, they want to do, but it's, it's a self-centered pursuit. It's a selfish desire many times. And the real joy in living is found in knowing God and doing what we do for His glory. Now, we've been in the midst of this study, Lifeboats, and we've talked about so many things together in these last many weeks. We've talked about how God always has a plan, and, and He's always got a purpose, and, and uh, He's got great power. And today I want us to consider how God has given us a truth that can serve as His premise for everything we do. What is the starting point? What is the motivator for all that we do in life? I want you to know it is the will of God the Father that we would live for something that is bigger than ourselves. That we would live for something that will outlast our physical lives. The Apostle Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians, uh, excuse me, in the Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1. He said, if... You then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. What he was saying in that statement is, if, if you're what we might call today a Christian, if you're a believer, if you're saved, if you have a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, if that's you, live for those things that are above. Live for eternal things. Live for heavenly things. He was saying there's more value to this life than the tangible and the material and the temporary. He said you have been provisioned through your faith in Christ to live for something that's forever. So with that in mind, we look to Psalm 107 today. And Psalm 107, is, it's a great psalm in the Bible. It's directed to a group of people. In fact, if your Bibles are open and you're looking in verse 2, that's not where we'll be reading today. But, but the psalmist there says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. He's writing this this book, or this chapter rather, to a group he calls the redeemed. In our vernacular, we would say to believers. Today, we would say to Christians. And he's writing it to them, and, and he's wanting to show them the power of God in every situation of life. W would you look up here for a moment? The psalmist is writing this letter to say this. To those that know God, it does not matter what you go through in life. God can use it in a great way. He's a great God. He's got great power. He can use your life. Now, to make that point, in the midst of this, this psalm that he writes, he uses a variety of examples. As he begins to write, he talks to them about, about people who are prisoners in bondage. And all of these are word pictures. 
he said, it, maybe you look at your life and you feel like, man, I'm just in prison here. Uh, he says, God can overcome. He talks about people that, that are really sick, going through health struggles. And he said, maybe that's where you're at in life, physically or, or uh, metaphorically. You're, you're going through a time of sickness. But he also uses an analogy of sailors. And since we're studying lifeboats, we're going to really deal with this final analogy he uses in Psalm 107 to really make a point that God's a great God. And if you're able today, I'd like to invite you to join me in standing as we look to Psalm 107. And we're going to begin today reading in verse 23. Psalm 107 and verse 23. If you look with me there, please, the Bible says this. They that go down to the sea in ships, that do business in great waters, these see the works of the Lord and His wonders in the deep. For He commandeth and raiseth the stormy wind, which lifteth up the waves thereof. They mount up to the heaven, they go down again to the depths. Their soul is melted because of trouble. I'm going to read on, but it's an interesting expression when the Bible says their soul is melted. In the New Testament, we're commanded in the context of the local church to comfort the feeble-minded. And that expression literally means, in the original language of the New Testament, people with a weak soul. And all of us have times in life where we're taking body blows, but they're not being received by our body. They're spiritual in nature, and, and, and it's on the inside. And so the Bible speaks of these who are going through difficulties in that way. Verse 27, they reel to and fro, and stagger like a drunken man and are at their wits end. Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble. And he bringeth them out of their distresses. He maketh the storm a calm so that the waves thereof are still. Then are they glad because they be quiet. There's nothing as nice as just peace and quiet after you've been through a very noisy time in life. You know? He said they're glad. It's, it's quiet. So he bringeth them unto their desired haven. Have a just a statement here on the end of all this. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for His goodness. And uh, that's a question, but it's one of those rhetorical questions. You know, he said, "Man, our God's good." Oh, that men would praise the Lord for His goodness and for His wonderful works to the children. In the beginning of verse twenty-three, near the beginning, we find this statement: "Down to the sea." I want us to think on that together this morning. Down to the sea. Our Father, thank you for the Bible. We thank you for the truth of it. And we thank you today for the opportunity to, to study and learn. And I pray you help me to be a blessing to these here, Lord. I know that uh, uh, I care, and I want them to know that. But God, much more than that, you care. And you have a plan for this hour before us, this, this study before us. And so I pray you use it and help us. We ask this. study of Jewish history in the general time frame in which this psalm was written would reveal that some great things were happening in their country. It would reveal that battles had been fought and won. Cities were being established and rebuilt and palaces were being built and it was an amazing time of victory for the Israeli people, the people we generally refer to in the Bible as the people of God, the Jewish people. But what's interesting is as you study this time and all the wealth that they had, you'll find that there's not much mention of, of a navy or of, or of great ships. In fact, as we think of Solomon, the king who, who was following that one that wrote this psalm, we would know he was a wise man and he was a rich man. But there's really no record in the Bible or in any Jewish 
historical records that that he had uh, a, a sailboat or a royal yacht. This was someone who didn't have any of those things. I want you to understand as we're getting into this text that the analogy used here of, of a ship is something that would have got their attention. Let's look now to what Charles Spurgeon had to say about the season. Charles Spurgeon's a preacher. He lived years ago, but he makes a statement here. He said, navigation was so little practiced among the Israelites that mariners were invested with a high mystery and their craft was looked upon as one of singular, daring degree, and peril. Here's the thought I want you to understand. The psalmist here is writing about people that go down to the sea in their great ships. And he was talking about people that they would have really looked on with respect. People that were going places they never would have gone. People that were doing things that they never would have done. He's, he's writing about a group of people that would have been greatly respected for their bravery in going to what the Bible calls the great sea. And so in this word picture, we have something that would have captured, uh, captured the attention of the readers. And, and the psalmist here is encouraging us about life and the motive of it. And if you have your outline nearby, I'd like for you to take it out. And we're going to consider a variety of thoughts in this text. Let's look first of all together. As we look to the Bible today, we're going to see the lives of great intention. Lives of great intention. Now let's go back to where it all begins in verse 23. The Bible says it this way. They that go down to the sea in ships, that do business in great waters. I want you to notice they went to the sea in ships. They went to the great waters. And I learn a lot of by what the Bible says, but we can learn sometimes by what the Bible doesn't say. And I, I don't want to get ridiculous, but it doesn't say they that go to the pond and kayaks, all right? These were people had bigger dreams than that. It, it doesn't refer to those who go to the pool and their floaties. These were people of great intention. These were people with uh, courage. These are people of great hope. These are people that wanted to get something big done with their lives. I've said many times before, but if God is your partner in life, make really big plans. If God is the one that is enabling you in life, don't aim low. Don't shoot for the small things. Go for the big things in your life. I'm not a fan of thoughtless lives that invite risk or injury. I believe planning is a part of it. We find the value of planning in the Bible. And in fact, in Luke chapter 14 and verse 28, the Bible tells us, Which of you intending to build a tower sitteth not down first and, and counteth the cost? In other words, the idea is that there's value in planning and forecasting and so forth. But sometimes I think if we're honest, under the guise of playing it safe, under the guise of really having discretion or discernment, what we're really saying in those statements is, you know, I'm just a little bit afraid to go for it. I'm a little bit afraid to do anything that is bigger than I am, to require something of me that maybe I don't have. These are people that they wanted to do business, big business, and they did it in great waters. And sometimes we hang out in the shallow end of the pool of life. When God says, listen, if you just get out a little bit deeper, you find there's some great things in store for you. The sad thing would be to go through life and really never even have any intention living for something that was bigger than ourselves, something that would last longer than, than the temporary. The people in this text, they went there. In 1790, a pioneer among missionary pioneers, a man by the name of William Carey, he established what they call the society, a mission society for the purpose of carrying the gospel around the world. Now that's what I would call living for something bigger than yourself. This is a man that said, I've only got one life. I can, I can spend it. I can waste it or I can invest it. He made the decision, I want to invest my life in what matters most. He said, I want to live for God and I want to see others come to know Jesus as their Savior. And so he established his society. It didn't go as well as you might expect it to go, even among Christians. 
In fact, one time before the society was established, he told a group of men that he wanted to see people in other countries come to know Jesus as their Savior. And one of the men that heard him say that said this, and it was quoted in his life story. He said this, young man, sit down. When God wishes to reach the heathen, he'll do so without your help or mine. Now, I don't even know that I like the tone of young man, sit down. I think there was probably a little bit of a sting in that, you know. I remember when our church started, we had a man visit. He looked at me and he said, where's the pastor? I said, well, I'm the pastor. And he said, where's the senior pastor? And I said, well, I guess I'm the senior pastor, you know. And he looked at me and he said, I've got boots older than you. And I said, you need some new boots. And that's about how things went. But he was really trying to make a point that I wasn't as old as he thought I should be. No one makes that point anymore, actually. But at any rate, at that time they did. And and so he comes at him with a young man, you know, just trying to uh, uh, put him down. That's, that's how they do it sometimes. And, and uh, he said, you know, if God wants to reach the heathen, he'll do so without your help or mine. Well, that could have discouraged some people, but William Carey just kept going. And this is a man who one time when he had a, a group of ministry people together, he was teaching and preaching. He made this statement, and I want you to listen to this statement. He said, expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. That's a statement that even to this day is quoted much and it deserves all the attention it gets. You see this man, William Carey, who was called young man and told to sit down and told that God wouldn't use his life. He, he went on after that time in his life to start over a hundred churches. He started dozens of Christian schools. This is a man who personally translated the Bible into 34 other languages. Why? Because he expected great things from God. He said, we've got a big God. He's a great God. I expect he's up to it. I expect he's capable of doing it. I expect our God can do anything he wants to do. And so what William Carey said is, I'll live for God, and I'm expecting great things from him. Therefore, I will attempt great things for him. I love that mindset. He was just trusting the Lord. And when we trust God, we will then attempt great things for God. When I look to this text, I see, first of all, lives of great intention. But as we move on, and then our, in our study today, we see the joy of trusting God. The joy of trusting God. Now, there's a connection that needs to be made in this study, and I want you to notice these words, all right? We begin by seeing those that go down to the sea in ships, okay? These are those who have lives of great intention, lives of faith, a relationship with God, living for God. They go down to the sea. That's the word picture. Now, these are the ones, the Bible says, that see the works of the Lord. These are the ones that see his wonders in the deep. And I love that thought. Those that live for God, they have the joy of trusting God. Now, I haven't spent tons of time at sea, but, but I'll tell you this. Just about every time I go down to the ocean or I spend time on the ocean, I come away thinking, that thing's huge. It's enormous. It's powerful. I mean, the ocean itself is a wonder, but to think that it was created by God, it's a wonder of God. We had a man in our early service today who told me he'd been through several hurricanes in the Navy and, and just how strong and powerful and mighty the ocean was. And he said every time he'd go through something like that, he thought how great God must be. And, and you know, sometimes when we spend time around the ocean, we'll come away thinking, man, God is awesome. And God created the ocean. In Genesis chapter 18 and verse 14, the rhetorical question was asked this way. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? Well, the answer is no. God can do anything. Just look around. And, and the point is made in this text that those who trust God, those who live for God, they are the ones that learn really what it is that God can do. I'm thankful for that truth. 
picked an interesting place to perform his first miracle. It's actually at a wedding. Maybe you remember the story. If you've heard it, it was found in John chapter 2. We find an occasion where Jesus was, was at this wedding and the family ran out of wine. And that would have been a major, major faux pas in that moment in world history. You just didn't have a celebration like that without having everything people would need. And, and so Jesus very compassionately intervened and, and he turned water into wine. But it's in the middle of that whole situation that we really get a snapshot, a little insight into what it is to be involved in a life in which God is working. John chapter 2 and verse 9, we read this. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom. Now I can read on. An amazing story. We could read before and after, but, but I want us to get the idea of what's happening here. Jesus did a miracle. He did something others would have said is impossible. He turned water into wine. And, and the Bible says in the midst of all that, that nobody knew what's going on. The ruler of the feast didn't know. The bridegroom didn't know. But the servants which drew the water knew. Why did they know? Because they were serving with Jesus. They were a part of it. They were getting the water for him. They were a part of that which Jesus was doing. And listen, friends, for the Christian who lives life's, uh, life from a premise of self-service, there's no way we're going to know the joy of living together with God. Our theme all year long as a church has been together with God. If you're a Christian and you're not living your life together with God, you'll never know the joy of living a life together with God. And when we live by faith and see God do what we could never do in our flesh, in our own energy, we can come away with some insight. God doesn't reveal His wonders to show them off. They are revealed to those who go down to the sea. His miracles are not to amuse us. They're seen in the lives of those who demand so by that, I mean the miracles of God show up in the lives of those whose lives have been put in a place where it can be done no other way than by the divine intervention, the supernatural touch of God. We see the joy of trusting God. We get to see Him work, but as we continue looking in this text, we're going to see next the commander of the storms. Now, if we were not so far into this study together, we might be surprised what we find next in this passage. But true to form, we, we read here, where the Bible tells us this, for he commanded and raised the stormy wind. Now, let's, let's understand. He, God, commanded the storm. We find the commander of the storm. Now, someone said, Pastor, we had a pretty positive sermon going today, and he had to go and bring the storm right back in the middle of it. And uh, yeah, I'm sorry, that's just the way it goes. It was right here in the text. But the point of emphasis here is, is there's a commander of the storm. We, we can see the Lord in the midst of it all. Uh, I have to come to understand, friends, that I am unqualified to determine if a storm in my life is good or bad. How many of you, like me, have had an occasion in your life where something happened, you went, man, that was terrible, that was bad, but then by the end of it, it all worked out, and I was like, oh, that really wasn't that bad. That actually was kind of a break. I think most of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Most of you probably have. These ones are a little harder to see in life, but you've probably also had times in your life where something happened. You had that promotion or or the new job or the move, and you thought, man, this is great. This is awesome. This is a good thing. But with a little distance in between you and that moment, you thought, no, that wasn't as good as I thought it was. And um, the point we're seeing here is in life, we're not always qualified or up to the task of saying this is a good thing or a bad thing, because we don't know how things are going to turn out in the long run. So we come to this text where the Bible's mentioning the role of storms and the fact that God uses them. And, and we need to see that storms develop our faith. And like a muscle, our faith needs to be put to the test. It would be better to test us than God who commands the storm. 
You ever smell something that just takes you back to a place in time? Um, in, in, in cold, a colder, cooler morning, I should say, I smelled fresh cut grass. And in my mind's eye, it took me back to football in, in high school years, you know. And just that smell took me right there. And I remember those two-a-day practices especially where we'd get there really early and our coach would just about try to kill us, you know. I'm pretty convinced he hated us all and he wanted to kill us. In fact, if people weren't throwing up and running too much, he just felt like he wasn't doing his job. He'd just about try and kill us. And, and uh, I remember doing all that. And I, I can remember times after practices where we'd be done. I'd just lay there on the field for a while to get up enough strength to get out of there and get home, you know. Before I'd even take my gear off, I just kind of lay there, and, and, and the other guys did that a lot of times as well. I've been at the point of absolute physical exhaustion in football before, but I want you to know this. I've never been as tired in the game as I have been in some of the practices. Now, that's not to say I didn't try in the game. It's just there's a game clock in the game, and there are timeouts, and there's half times, and, and uh, uh, I, I tried to push it as hard as I could, but I never got as tired in the game as I did in those practices. How many that's probably the way the coach designed it. He wanted to get us ready for things that were to come. And as we look to these verses, we can see really some profound reasons why God would orchestrate a storm just for us. We see some thoughts. I know they're there in your notes, but I want us to go through them. I, I see here that God can bring a storm into our life to shed self-confidence. To shed self-confidence. As we just go through this verse by verse, let's listen and see what verse 26 has to say. Their soul is melted because of trouble. So God, the commander of the storm, allows trouble to come into their lives that kind of does a little number on them. It, it melts them down, so to speak. You know what our world loves to tell you? You can do it. You can do anything. Just uh, uh, conceive of it in your mind and believe it, and then you can achieve it. You can do it. And I want you to know what God says today. God says, no, you can't. You can't do anything. But he adds to that these words. But with says this, don't get self-confident, don't get puffed up in pride, don't get to thinking you're all that. He says, why don't you look to me? Our world says you can do it. God says, no, you can't. But he adds by saying, but with me, you can. In Matthew 19 and 26, the Bible says with men, it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 3 says this, he said, it's not that we're sufficient of ourselves to think anything is of ourselves. Our sufficiency is of God. Our ability is, is from the Lord. And we'll never understand that until we shed self-confidence. We'll never know how great God is until we understand our need for Him. As we continue looking here, we see that storms can help us to shed self-confidence. It can also help us to recalibrate our bearings. And I know that's kind of contrary to the way we think. Storms many times turn us around, but, but the Bible is saying here that storms have a way of recalibrating our bearings men in this text we read the bible says they were like drunken men and they reeled to and fro and they staggered that meant they lost their sense of direction they didn't hardly know up from down and as they were bobbing and weaving there in that boat in the storm they couldn't tell really which direction they were going and and, and to find true north once again they needed the lord listen to what jeremiah said in jeremiah 10 23 he said oh lord I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. Now listen to what the prophet is saying here. He's saying basically, God, my bearings need to be recalibrated. I don't know the right direction to go apart from your work in my life. We have to look to the Lord. We 
know that storms shed self-confidence. We recalibrate our bearings in them. Also, storms have a way of revealing to us that we don't know it all. At the end of verse 27, we find this. They were at their wits end. Wit. That's their intellect, their understanding. And they were at the end of it. They thought, I, I have no idea what to do. They're at their wits end. I was talking with a friend recently. And he asked my opinion on some things. He was asking me for advice. And uh, I know that advice that is not requested, it's never appreciated, but he asked. And so I was trying to say some things. And, and every time I'd say something, he kept saying, oh, I know, I know, I know. And, and throughout the whole thing, he just kept saying, I know, I know, I know. And uh, I, I wanted to say, I was too nice to say this, so I'll tell you if you don't tell anybody. Okay, but what I was thinking is, I now know your problem. You think you know everything. You can't learn a thing. I mean, you even asked, and now as I'm trying to say something, all you can say is, I know, I know, I know. And it's like, but you don't know. And storms have a way of putting us in a position in life where we have to concede, you know what, I guess I don't really know how to get out of this mess. And, and when we trust God and look for a wisdom that only comes from God, we're in a good place because God has a great track record. The Bible tells us in Deuteronomy 32 and verse 4 of God that He's our rock. His work is perfect. That all His ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity just and right is He. Storms have a way of gently lightly reminding us, hey, you don't know it all. Look to the Lord. Finally, storms have a tendency to bring us closer to the Lord. In verse 28, we find the end game of it all here. All right, they go through a storm, and then, and then what happens? Listen to what the Bible says happens. And then, then, because of the storm, they cry unto the Lord in their trouble, and He bringeth them out of their distresses. Storms aren't just to teach us our limitations. They do that. But they're to teach us of God's power and our access to Him. So in verse 28, they cried unto the Lord. Listen to what the Bible tells us when we look at verse 29. He maketh the storm a calm, so that the waves thereof are still. A sweet peace emerges in our lives when we're not looking for peace in the absence of the storm, but we're finding it rather in the presence of God. desired haven. We find here that in the midst of all this, God brought them to their desired haven. I want to ask today a question that you would think on in your heart. What is your desired haven? Where is it that you're heading in life? Where are you going in life? Or what is it that, that uh, you're seeking for the Lord to do in your life? For the Christian, we could ultimately see our haven as a relationship with God. We, we might identify it as an eternity in, in heaven with God. What is your desired haven? Author and songwriter Henry Gilmore came to America as a teenager from Ireland. He learned the trade of dentistry and was a dentist for years. But the last 25 years of his life, he was a man that came to love the Lord very much. And, and uh, he left his dental practice to write and sing Christian music and to, and to uh, teach the word to others. And he wrote a song, and the title of the song that he wrote was this, The Haven of and it was a song, really, that said for him that desired haven is Jesus. He 
said, it's not a place for me. It's a person. All I need in life, he was saying, can be found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But in the course of our lives, we have to think, where is it that I'd like to go? What do we want to do? Because we can't arrive at any destination if we don't know our heading. We don't know where we are. Maybe today would be the day where it would be good to go down to the sea, so to speak. Maybe today would be a good day in relationship to your life, saying, look, I, I want to be someone of great intention. I want to go for it, and I want to see something bigger and better than anything I can produce. I'd love the thought of my life being given over to God so He can do through me that which pleases Him. I want to see God work in that way. Maybe today would be a great day to go down to the sea, so to speak, so you can trust God for the distinction and the direction and the development needed to make the journey sail with God, you always, always, always reach to the destination. We're talking about having a relationship with God, going where He's going, doing it together with Him, and trusting Him to help you. The story was told of a man that owned a business in which he built sailboats, large sailboats, and people from around the world would, would uh, buy those boats, and he took great pride in the business that he built, and as he came to kind of the end of his career, he realized that he something and he had a son who'd been in the business with him and and he kind of wanted to give the business to his son but frankly he was unsure if his son kind of had what it took to take the business and see it go on and thrive and so he told his son kind of his dilemma and he said son here's what i'm gonna do i want you to build your own sailboat and i want you to sail it around the world and, and uh, if you're able to do that then we'll talk about you taking this family business and that's what they did so the son went to work and began to build a sailboat helped in a lot of areas on boats. He was familiar with boats, but he just he never really built one from beginning to end. And knowing that he was going to have to sail in that boat around the world kind of made him want to make sure it was really the way it should be. So he had a couple points where he just wasn't sure what to do. And he came to his dad and he said, Dad, I've never built a whole boat and I'm not sure how to do this. What is it that I need to do? And, and the story says that the father told his son this. He said, Son, build it for the storm. Friends, I want you to know that if you're a person of faith and that you have a relationship with God, through the work of regeneration or the new birth that comes by way of putting our faith in Jesus Christ, you've been built for the storm. We can go through those stormy times knowing that God not only is commanding the storm, He's commanding our life. And He can do in our lives whatever it is that needs to be done. And sometimes we squander opportunity because in the midst of time of tension or turmoil, we begin to look inside and see our own limitations rather than the unlimited capacity of God. And, and sometimes we miss opportunities because uh, of the stress and tension that emerges when we need to understand that if, if it's God that is leading the way, we're in good shape. Friends, God's built us for the storm. He doesn't need us to steer clear of storms because they are great times of learning and growth. And not only do we learn a lot about ourselves in those times, we learn so much about God. And I wonder today, are you sailing with Christ in your life? Do you have a relationship with God? And then I wonder today, when's the last time you've gone down to the sea? And I say that in the sense that it was given in this text. When's the last time you've ventured into an area of life that was bigger than you are, requiring the touch of God? When's the last time you've done something that literally required faith? And the psalmist today would encourage us by saying, God's up to Follow God. Let Him do that work in your life. I wonder if you'd be so kind as to join.
together. And 